0: The This Is Hell show you are about to hear was recorded on Thursday, September 21st. We have held off on posting this episode at the request of The Intercept that published the article that we will you will hear us discussing. And we are holding off on it until that story has been posted at The Intercept. So if you are hearing this right now, you can find the story now online at The Intercept. Now that alice Sperry's story has been posted, a story on Ukrainian women being double victimized by the Russians that sexually abused them and their neighbors that viewed the victims as, get this, Russian collaborators. It's a very difficult conversation. It's going to have a conversation about sexual violence, so please be forewarned. This has never happened in the history of This Is Hell that we've embargoed any of our uh, content, uh, but at the request of The Intercept, we decided that it was best for us to do it this time. We really appreciate all the support of The Intercept, Alice Sperry, for being on the show, and we hope that you learn from the upcoming show and interview. Thank you very much for listening, and show your support at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thank you. Hell. War is hell, and this is hell. So today our guest will reveal to us the hell that is the war between Russia and Ukraine, especially for the women of Ukraine. Years ago, the late great historian Howard Zinn, who was on our show several times, and all those interviews are currently available at our Patreon page. When he was on the show uh, following uh, one of our many interviews that, again, you can find at patreon.com slash thisishell, Howard told us, I have always welcomed the opportunity to be interviewed by Chuck Mertz on This Is Hell. He is unabashedly partisan on matters of peace and justice and gives his interviewees the opportunity to express themselves as boldly as they like. He upholds the best standards of independent media, honesty, courage, Refusal to play the game I hope he will Continue to get the support he needs So over the 27 years We have been on air Guests have definitely not been partisan Our guests always point to The shortcomings of both The American, the major American political parties When it comes to doing What is best for the people Especially those who are working class and marginalized But when it comes to matters of Peace and justice I gotta admit, Howard was right if we have any agenda, it is that we are prejudiced in our support of both peace and justice, being predisposed that, get this, we favor peace over war and justice over corruption and dishonesty. That's why today we are speaking with Intercept reporter Alice Spere, who will be joining us to discuss her article on Russian troops' sexual violence against Ukrainian Ukrainians and those same Ukrainians being seen as collaborators by their neighbors. Aliche writes that the challenges facing survivors of sexual violence by Russian troops are exacerbated by Ukraine's treatment of suspected collaborators, including new harsh collaboration legislation. Aliche traveled to Ukraine in July of this year, where she interviewed sexual assault survivors and spoke with researchers, government officials, lawyers, and activists about the deepening fissures in Ukrainian society surrounding the question of collaboration with the Russian occupiers. She details the aftermath of sexual crimes committed by Russian forces. One of the women interviewed by said, uh, or said she was acquiesced to a Russian soldier's threats in order to protect her 13-year-old daughter, a decision that would lead to her being both investigated as as a collaborator and later formally recognized as a victim of wartime sexual violence Alice has authored several stories on russia's ongoing invasion of ukraine covering sensitive topics like oversight of military assistance war crimes by russian forces and accountability processes Alice hopes this can start an urgent conversation on the nature of wartime sexual violence and the laws being implemented to respond to Russia's brutal invasion Alice writes about U.S. foreign policy Abuses by military and security forces And the repression of dissent She is reported from Ukraine, Palestine, Haiti, El Salvador Colombia and across the United States Follow her on Twitter or whatever Twitter is being called now At Aliche Spere. That's spelled A-L-I-C-E-S-P-E-R-I Producing today's show is will ippen i am your bitter blind broke gap radio show host of this is hell will how are you how's your week gone so far so far
1: so good really um, uh, yeah surprisingly <laughs> uh, i was gonna say <laughs> uh yeah class is going well the semester's kind of entered that cruise control portion you know at least until we hit the midterm grades. A friend of
0: mine went back to graduate school for architecture at the University of Michigan, and he said that more and more of the students in his classes, uh, they don't actually attend the classes live and in person, they either watch it on Zoom or later on the lectures are posted online. Have you seen a change in the way in which students are interacting with your lectures?
1: Oh uh, well, after years of being forced into <laughs> online learning, I've noticed they've accommodated themselves to doing the reading. Because if you're remote, there's kind of nothing else to do but read. So that's right. uh, yeah. So yeah, I don't I don't record the lectures or anything because I use class time for discussion. So I don't know who'd want to resit through you know <laughs> dis- <laughs> the discussing some readings. But, right, but
0: people, but you think students but, are reading more?
1: Yeah, and uh, you that's know, cool. I make use of the, the course site to organize information well, post a little tutorial like how to use the library, stuff like that in there. You know. Well,
0: very cool. But, uh, I wish I was going to school today instead of when I went to school. <laughs> I made a huge mistake this week, and I'm hoping none of you made the exact same horrible, painful error that I did. I cannot stress this enough. Please do yourself a favor. Do not watch the President Biden impeachment hearings. If you are watching because you do want President Biden impeached, don't watch. The Republican Congress members nearly to a person rattle off a laundry list of conspiracy theories berating Attorney General Merrick Garland to the point of badgering the witness. Republicans ask a litany of questions that they do not give A.G. Garland time to answer, likely because they don't want him to answer or give any response to their conspiracy theories. They then do something that no member of Congress should ever do, no interviewer should ever do during one of these investigations, and that is to ask yes or no questions. Whenever this is done, the question is misleading, and as you may know from listening to this show, binary questions never deserve a yes or no response as there have been limits and parameters put on a subject that is far more complicated and complex than yes or no, being on one side or the other. So on the Democratic side, they show such deference to the Attorney General, sometimes referring to him as General, but always thanking him for his service to the country, which does not come off as objectively investigating something as important as an impeachment. They then either respond to wild conspiracy theories Waste time responding to wild conspiracy theories from the Republican side. A total waste of time in an impeachment hearing. Whether the theory is brought up by one side or shot down by the other. Or the Democrats pronounce that the whole investigation is a waste of time and there's far better things Congress should be doing. While this is true, what Democrats should be doing in this investigation is asking questions directly related to the impeachment, either so Democrats can give Garland the time to point out the flaws and the claims of those who do want to impeach President Biden or to determine who they should talk to about such claims. And that would be Trump-appointed U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who is in charge of the investigation. So do not watch the impeachment hearings if you want Biden impeached because you will be annoyed at the yelling and the haranguing and the unwillingness of Republicans to allow Garland or likely anyone in the future to answer questions they do not want answered. Also don't want, don't watch if you oppose President Biden. You want him to be, uh, be you oppose President Biden being impeached because you will be thoroughly disappointed in the Democratic Party lackeys who are just as interested in partisanism in this matter as the Republicans are. And if you are on the fence, I promise you, if their hearings continue like they were yesterday with Attorney General Garland, you're not going to learn a damn thing. On the other hand, If and when Republicans bring U.S. Attorney Weiss to the stand, the Trump-appointed investigator, now that could, could, stress could, be entertaining because it goes against the Republican narrative of a six-year President Biden-led effort to protect himself from impeachment. Unless somehow, before being elected president, Biden was working to derail his eventual impeachment as everyone knew he would inevitably be the president of the United States. And impeachment derailed with the cooperation of President Trump, which is as absurd as the hearings were yesterday. By the way, if you did watch and you saw Republicans asking the attorney general if U.S. Attorney Weiss has the ultimate authority in the Biden impeachment investigation, and Republicans insisted that Weiss told FBI and IRS whistleblowers that he did not have such authority... Well, according to reports, none of those whistleblowers remember Weiss ever saying he did not have ultimate authority in the investigation, which Republicans were claiming he, they had said. So Republicans' key witnesses don't remember saying exactly what the Republicans claim they said, which seems to be at the heart of their impeachment case. But more important than a public service announcement from your friends here at This Is Hell advising you to not watch the hearings, even if you are hate-watching. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what can climate change do for you? What can climate change do for you? Now, that's a hellish question. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us at This Is Hell Radio. You can share it at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell or on our Discord, or you can just email it to us at, at hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorton in the Moment of Truth. Will, what's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth?
1: Jeff lets you know what you can expect from your Dem friends throughout the coming year. Ugh. 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 Oh, good lord. Can't wait for that year. Uh,
0: To end? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Coming up, sexual violence in the Russia-Ukraine war. Will shares more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We will tell you what's happening on uh, this week's bonus Patreon podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And following this week's moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell your eyewitness to grief this is hell the misery pain and agony of war is sadly exemplified in the brutality experienced by women in the current conflict in ukraine with russia as it is horribly exemplified in every war that pain is then exacerbated by those who have been victims of sexual violence being seen by their neighbors not as victims, but as collaborators. Warning the following conversation will be an in depth discussion of atrocities and unspeakable cruelty. Please consider that before listening. We are very happy to have as our guest today Intercept reporter Alice Sperry, who is on to discuss her still unpublished article on Russian troops' sexual violence against Ukrainians and those same Ukrainians being seen as collaborators by their neighbors you can follow alice on twitter or whatever it's called now at a l i c e s p e r i alice sperry welcome to this is how alice
2: thank you so much for having me i'm glad to be here
0: thank you so much you're writing not only on this topic but other topics your recent writing on uh, palestine has just been exceptional so i really appreciate you being on the show you start by you. you start by writing that the first Russian soldiers arrived several days after Bucha had fallen looking for any men left behind. Anna, a widow, lived alone with her mother and teenage daughter. Anna told the soldiers, "We have no men," speaking in Russian. She warned her mother not to speak, worried that her Western Ukrainian dialect would mark her as a Bandera, the Ukrainian nationalist the Russians targeted first. Anna "'Showed the Russians her father's death certificate, "'which noted that he had been uh, born in Russia's Far East. "'She later told you that it's what saved us. "'She tried to appear welcoming, heeding a neighbor's advice. "'It's going to be worse if you don't let them in,' the elderly woman had warned.' Was there reason to heed that neighbor's warning? Was that based on rumor and innuendo, or was there evidence to suggest that it's going to be worse if you don't let them in? Had the community seen or heard about direct evidence uh, that not welcoming Russians would be horrible for the women?
2: I think, you know, this is the Bucha, Bucha is this city um, on the outskirts of Kiev, the capital, and it's one of the first places that was invaded by Russian forces during last year's full-scale invasion. And in the very early days of the conflict, uh, people really did not know what to expect. Uh, they certainly did not expect what we later saw in Bucha, which is really a massacre of many of those who stayed behind. Um, this is February 2022. A lot of people fled as soon as they saw Russian troops uh, were coming into the city. Some people stayed, mostly elderly people or people who really didn't have the means to go or anywhere to go. And so there really, you know, there was a lot of confusion. I think, um, you know, we later we once once Ukrainian troops returned to the city more than a month later, and we were able to see some of that happen. We, what happened there? We you know we saw more than five hundred people killed, executed sometimes with their hands tied behind their back with signs of torture. And so in a way, uh, I think that neighbor's advice was, you know, all she really could could say at that point, maybe sort of uh, appearing more welcoming to the Russian forces might have saved somebody. I think at that point, people were trying to survive in any way they could. And, um, and uh, uh, you know, this is what, what Anna, the protagonist of, of the story, did. She basically tried to survive by, you know, Peasing the soldiers, as she put it. Uh, She saw that as her only choice. Um, And, um, you know, this is is a a widow who was living with her elderly mother and her teenage daughter. A lot of the neighbors had men hiding in in their homes, in basements, in garages. Uh, At the beginning, soldiers were really looking for the men, and they executed many of them. Uh, but then once they kind of, you know, consolidated their occupation of the city, then they started going for the women and for a very different reason. And, and so this story really kind of talks about some of the challenges of those women, you know, face, faced by those women who stayed behind.
0: Why do you think they did not believe that the Russians would be as brutal and cruel as they were? Is that because of the... Uh, you know, many Ukrainians having a Russian background, and many Russians having a in the area having a, a, a Ukrainian background as well. Uh, do you think it's because of uh, their their history together of Russians and Ukrainians that Ukrainians just didn't think that the Russians would be this brutal?
2: I mean, I think there's certainly an element of that. Uh, you know, for a long time, people would move freely back and forth between Ukraine and Russia. Anna herself, you know, her father was Russian, and this is something that's quite common to many Ukrainians who had family members. From Russia at some point, like there are a lot of ties going back, you know, generations. Uh, but also, I think really the, the kind of the violence and, and the, the horror of this conflict took everybody by surprise, like certainly us as kind of, you know, observers in the United States and in Western Europe, where I'm from, but also Ukrainians themselves. I think a lot of them couldn't really believe this when it first happened. And, you know, some Ukrainians in, in the eastern parts of the country had seen a level of this since 2014 when, um, you know, when Russian forces and separatist forces seize control of parts of of the country. But but I think the level of horror that that people found in Bucha, for instance, when Bucha was liberated, is something that really surprised and shocked everyone. Uh, I have actually been writing quite a bit about war crimes accountability and the investigations that are underway at the moment. And the Ukrainian government has opened more than 80,000 investigations into alleged crimes since the invasion last year. And you know, kind of the, the sheer scale of the horror is something that like they certainly weren't prepared for. Uh, and you know, I think I have a, a quote at some point in the story from one of the attorneys where, you know, when 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 that you know she's talking about her client Anna, and basically when people returned and she started telling people what had happened to her, it, it was so horrifying they couldn't even believe her. Like there just wasn't really. Um, you know, like a a reference point almost. And then, of course, you know, as more and more territory was liberated over the last couple of years, we heard these stories emerge time and time again. And we really realized that the sexual violence was like a very widespread systemic component of Russia's invasion.
0: On our last show, we spoke with Kimberlé Crenshaw, who coined the terms intersectionality critical race theory. She was one of the people who started the uh, Say Her Name campaign. She talked about the shame black women often have for being abused in a similar fashion by police here in the United States. There's a sense that somehow the young black women abused, even killed by police here in the United States, somehow did something that led to that violence. Is there a sense on both sides in the Russia-Ukraine war, that if you are a woman who is abused by soldiers, it is something that the victim somehow provoked, leading to shame, not only for the person abused, but shame for their family, and but seen as shame by their family and fellow community members as well. Do you see this as something that's almost a, a cultural universal when it comes to sexual violence against women?
2: Absolutely. This is a, an enormous problem everywhere, and not not only in wartime, but certainly in wartime. I mean, sexual violence goes substantially underreported pretty much everywhere, uh, and particularly in the context of a conflict, the stigmatization of victims is really exacerbated. Uh, and, you know, in Ukraine, we saw that, you know, as the Ukrainian army regained control of formerly occupied territories, we saw all these reports emerge, but we know that we're never really going to know the true toll, uh, you know, the true scale of this, because so many people have are scared to come forward. And, and really, the focus of my story was not only on kind of societal, you know, stigma and and like a, in, in this case, and in Ukraine is hardly alone in this, but like a long running kind of, you know, tendency to blame the victim. Uh, but it, but in addition to that, there's been um, some, you know, there, there has been, you know, some, some legislation passed in the aftermath of the invasion last year that really kind of Um, criminalizes collaboration, but but defines collaboration in extremely vague terms so that everything, even, you know, paradoxically, being the victim of sexual violence by soldiers is seen as contact with those soldiers and therefore is seen as, you know, suspicious and and treasonous in some way. Uh, And so that was really, you know, what I set out to, to look into with this story. You know, I've been writing about war crimes in Ukraine for the last couple of years, and I wanted to talk about how two years in Ukraine is beginning to deal with, you know, on the one hand, like the, the sheer scale of it, and you know, with all these investigations I mentioned, but also the internal and kind of social divisions and ruptures that that were created by the conflict. Well, weren't created. I mean, there's been, you know, there have been divisions in Ukrainian society predating this conflict and going back generations. But but I think, you know, the conflict has only really heightened those. And um, and in a way, what was interesting to me about this, you know the story is like you talk about, you know, how war is hell. And of course, war is hell. And the, the, but the thing that people often don't talk about is that war doesn't end in Bucha's case when the city is liberated, right? War doesn't end with the end of the conflict, which, you know, of course, in much of Ukraine is ongoing. But, but you know, I wanted to look at kind of like the after effects and how they ripple on and how they create more conflicts and more resentment. And, and it's something that usually we don't, you know, as journalists don't pay a lot of attention to, but also something that society and um, in this case, the Ukrainian government and, you know, like the the, the justice system, prosecutorial structures don't really have uh, a system to to, to tackle this. Um, and so, you know, I've been in touch with civil society groups and human rights attorneys pretty much since the beginning of the conflict. And one thing I kept hearing about, but sort of quietly, it's, you know, something that's kind of controversial to talk about and nobody really wants to go there, is how the treatment of collaborators is by Ukrainian forces is sort of creating this um. You know, this well it, it, it's creating internal conflicts, and you know, collaborators are, you know, accused of a number of things. It's not just uh, victims of sexual violence who are being singled out as collaborators, but but in the particular case of victims of sexual violence, many of them are not coming forward because of this concern that they're going to be billed as traitors and potentially even investigated as collaborators.
0: That's a really interesting point that wars don't end, and it, when you think about uh, the build up to a war. What you don't hear, especially a good example would be here in the United States with the run-up to the war in Iraq, you do not hear any commentators saying the majority of people who will be killed in this war are going to be civilians, non-combatants, and there is going to be an epidemic of sexual violence against women. And those two—it just stuns me that these things are never discussed in the run-up to war. It's really disturbing to me. You were just mentioning the social divisions within Ukraine. What for people who don't know, what are those social divisions within Ukraine, even predating the 2014 invasion by Russia?
2: Yeah, that's really interesting, and it's interesting that you know, it's something that for you know anyone who's really only started paying attention to Ukraine over the last year probably has seen this very, you know, this very united country, very patriotic country. I think the Ukrainian government, and not only the government, a lot of civil society as well, has, you know, very successfully projected this image of uh, a united front against Russians invasion. Yeah. And for the most part, that's certainly there. But but that kind of united front has come at the cost of, of obscuring some of the internal divisions. And, and it's something that people don't like to talk about, but there are Ukrainians who are pro-Russian in some way. There are Ukrainians who supported, um, you know, Separatist efforts back in 2014, and even some Ukrainians who supported last year's invasion. And uh, um, some of them might have just done so out of, you know, political sympathies or because of family connections. um, That, you know, those people are now seen as collaborators. Uh, The problem is that, you know, there are thousands and thousands of them. Uh, and then the additional problem is that a lot of people are being accused of being collaborators who did not necessarily uh, aid the, the occupation. So just to kind of, you know, open a parenthesis on, on this on this um question of collaboration, I mean, collaboration is not unique to Ukraine. It's something that we see in every conflict. You know, you can think about post-World War II Europe, right, where like uh, former, uh, You know, former public administrators were accused of working with the Nazi regime and and did actually work with the Nazi regime. So, like, this is something that happens everywhere. And we don't really have a a good example of how countries have handled this problem uh, anywhere. I mean, even under international law, it's actually there's quite a bit of ambiguity because, on the one hand, you know, the law kind of posits that an occupying power has to preserve services and maintain like a modicum of normalcy in the areas it occupies. On the other hand, you know, and it is allowed to like work with local local administrators to do so. On the other hand, uh, a country is well within its rights to prosecute people who have aided the occupation. And so there's this kind of, you know, um, this conflict that gets created there. Um, And so I think what, what the question of collaboration really shows is that while accountability is hugely important in post conflict we you know like the fact that for instance there was impunity for russian crimes in syria certainly contributed to russian crimes in ukraine so on the one hand you know prosecuting these crimes is extremely important on the other hand we have to be a little selective about who it is that we prosecute what kind of cases are we going to build and and ukrainian authorities haven't quite been able to do so they have launched you know some 6000 investigations uh, of alleged collaborations many of them are like low level people that have not Actively contributed or actively supported Russian troops. They're just people that kind of got caught in the middle. Um, and uh, you know what's challenging about collaboration law that uh, Zelensky passed after the invasion last year is that it really kind of, you know, with a, a with a broad stroke, just kind of captures all a wide wide range of behavior. So you know, a collaborator could be somebody who feeds intelligence to Russian forces that, like, you know, result in direct. Attacks against civilians. And then a collaborator could be somebody who, you know, in a village sells food to soldiers, maybe because they're scared, maybe because they like the soldiers, maybe to survive. And we don't know the motivations. The law doesn't really discern uh, between them. Um, and so I think what, what's, you know, what what's fascinating to me about this story is how, you know, Ukrainian authorities in an effort to kind of project this unity have sort of, you know, blanket uh, build everybody that's in some way aided the effort, the Russian effort as a collaborator, without really thinking about the long-term impact of that, which is, you know, to contribute to more divisions and more resentment. Um, yeah, sorry, I went on a long tangent No, 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 (laughs)
0: this is what you're supposed to do. That's why we allow you to answer, just like Howard Zinn was saying. So, uh, but for success, you said for the, the long-term impact of the Zelensky anti-collaboration legislation, you know, he didn't really, maybe didn't consider what that long-term impact was. So for a short-term success in the war, do you believe it was necessary for President Zelensky to immediately implement a law against collaboration, no matter how poorly it was written?
2: You know, I'm not sure that it was necessary for like short-term success in the war, but it was certainly necessary to project this this sense that the government is doing something about this issue because there was a lot of resentment after the 2014 conflict which is really what like you know the first proposals for this law came in the aftermath of that conflict where you know Ukrainian citizens aided the Russian you know aided the Russian separatists and pro-Russian separatists and Russian troops that were there at the time and in areas that remained after Ukrainian control so you know parts of Ukraine have been under Russian control since 2014 but in areas that remained under Ukrainian control we saw incidents like, you know, people who had been tortured by pro-Russian separatists now running into their torturers at like a local store. And, you know, there was no justice system in place, no accountability. And so that created a lot of conflict. And, you know, an argument in in sort of favor of of this criminalization of collaboration, something that, you know, um, supporters of this law will say over again and, you know, have a a strong point is that if the government doesn't intervene um, to sort of Regulates some of this, that then then it's you know then it, it turns into vigilante justice. Then you have the people kind of take vengeance into their own hands, and that's something that we actually you know saw happen in in Bucha as well, where you know the woman I write about, who um, you know neighbors believed to be a collaborator, believed to be a traitor, she was under investigation for a while by authorities. Ultimately, authorities recognized her as a victim of sexual violence, so she is currently, as far as we know, no longer being. Looked at as a as a collaborator by by authorities, but but her neighbors in Bucha still see her as a traitor. And so, somebody vandalized her fence. Somebody attacked her daughter. Somebody smashed her windows. And so, basically, what, what you know, people that are in support of this law say, like, the government has to show that it is doing something um, to to tackle this issue of traitors. The problem is, you know, the 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 problem is that it's um, a very broad definition. It doesn't. Necessarily focus on the higher level collaborators. It just ends up actually a lot of the higher level collaborators who do exist, you know, either fled into Russian-held territory or have kind of like the means to, to to escape. And so a lot of people who end up being prosecuted are those that are responsible for lower level behavior. Um, and um, so I think yeah, I mean I I see that the necessity not so much for the legislation, but the necessity for you know, the Ukrainian government to show this strong united front to respond to what is ultimately a societal call for justice. Uh, like really this, you know, the, the, one thing that fascinated me in, in speaking with a lot of the, the people I met in Ukraine is that they, many of them see collaborators or, you know, whether through collaborators or people they believe to be collaborators, they, they hate them just as much as Russian troops. Like they they see, perhaps you know, because of their treason, they almost hate them more. So there's really this kind of like um, sense that you know society wants wants um, revenge on these people, and and I think it's the government has then put in the tricky position of how do you carry that out in a way that's you know humane and legal, but also doesn't create more and more conflict going forward. And so this is actually the reason why a collaboration law was not passed before. There had been proposals on the table several of them since 2014. And I think a lot of legislators, you know, recognized this was going to be a very divisive issue. This was going to create conflict. There are also other laws under Ukrainian, you know, under Ukraine's criminal code that could be applied to these people. You know, there's treason law, there are other, you know, other crimes that that could be referenced. Uh, and so, you know, the push for this legislation didn't really, didn't really succeed until last year's invasion. And then within days of last year's invasion, Zelensky passes law and uh, um, and here we are now. And actually, you know, today there are some conversations happening at the legislative level in Ukraine, some people talking about reforming the law, but many of them actually talking about making it even harsher. So I, I don't think, you know, even though a lot of practitioners and prosecutors and people that are kind of like dealing with the day-to-day implementation see the problems with it, the societal call for justice against collaborators is still there and so it's um it's something that the government is ultimately responding to and and that's why I wanted to tell this story to kind of show that you know the the ambiguity even of collaboration I mean I you know Anna the, the the woman the story is about denies any allegation that she fed information to Russian soldiers she denies any accusation by you know that by her neighbors that she betrayed them in some way but um but ultimately, like the, the the you know like the neighbors don't believe that like the, this this kind of uh, they they still see her as a traitor and um and so I think you know I wanted to do a story that kind of gets at the complexity of this issue without necessarily answering it in in some way um I think you know in Ukraine in Ukrainian press you're starting to see occasionally a rare story just kind of questioning you know how you know questioning some of the instances of collaborations that have been prosecuted and you know kind of trying to show that the you know the humanity between these alleged collaborators some of them are, are kind of like caught you know in in the circumstances but it's it's um it's something that's still very rare there is certainly a tendency to just kind of build someone a traitor and and not really ask too many questions about what led them to do what they may have done. Uh, when there is evidence that they actually did something, which, you know, is often not there.
0: So was this anti-collaboration legislation at the beginning of the war, as well as the anti-collaboration legislation that you were just mentioning that would make the legislation even harsher than it is, are they politically popular within uh, the Ukrainian voting public? Because this sounds a lot to me like uh, shortly after 9-11 and the Bush administration employing the Patriot Act, which has led to a growing militarized police and surveillance situation system here in the United States, as well as the authorization of the use of military force, which only one congressperson, uh, Barbara Lee, voted against. And that authorization of uh, use of military force has led to what we are in right now, which is the forever war that we've been engaged in now for 22 years, 23 years. So, do you, were, are these anti-collaboration legislations? Are they very popular amongst the uh, you know Ukrainian people?
2: Yeah, I mean, we don't really have polls, but but there is a sense that they are very popular, and and that's that's kind of you know why we haven't seen a, a you know kind of a, a greater assessment or reassessment of this law rather. Um, early on, the first proposals after the 2014 conflict were really focused on civil servants uh, and elected officials, municipal officials, so people in positions of, you know, like either in position of power politically or like you know administrators that helped the pro-Russian separatists or the Russian invasion. And 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 so at the beginning, the proposal was to just target those individuals with civil penalties, with bans on public office, with you know, relatively minor sentences so that that was kind of like the, the spirit of the legislation at first um and and there was very much a, a demand for that um at the same time what is you know the law that ultimately passed last year is a much broader take on that and so basically the law right now you know prohibits a Broad, broad range of behavior it prohibits, you know, participating in political, legal, law enforcement activities under the occupiers, which could mean, you know, participating in some of these sham elections the Russian, Russian um, occupation forces are putting up in some of these territories. It could mean, but it could also mean, you know, and we've seen a lot of these cases. It could mean, um, you know, jail staff or police officers or municipal workers continuing to report to work right under new authorities. Another case we've seen. Another instance we've seen a lot of cases of is um, teachers and school principals and school administrators who continue to go to work and continue to teach and continue to keep schools open in occupied territory. But, they, you know, they're now working under Russian Russian forces. And so they're implementing a Russian curriculum, which is essentially propaganda. And so that triggers a different a different element of the law. And so we've seen, you know, the the targeting of um, educators who who um you know, kept going to work. And and, and that's actually something that, that has faced a little bit of criticism or, you know, at least skepticism in, in broader Ukrainian society. I mean, some people point to the fact that if you apply this law literally to people who live in occupied territory, you're talking about tens of thousands of people. And particularly when you talk about territories like Crimea that have been under occupation since 2014, I mean, there are, you know, thousands of teachers there. There are people that have lived under Russian forces, under Russian authority for Basically, a decade who necessarily collaborated, and some of them may have done so because they are sympathetic to to the Russian presence. Some of them may have done so because they just need a job and they keep, you know, they need a salary coming. Some of them may have done it because they believe schools should remain open, you know, even under the circumstances. And so I, I think, you know, some of the, the the kind of paradoxes of this law kind of emerge when you when you think about territories that have been occupied for a long time. And you know, there's been some timid calls to to sort of amend this law to either account for those people who've you know whose circumstances have been different for you know who've been under occupation for a decade, um, but also to kind of really focus on the, the the collaboration that leads to to ultimately like you know targeting of civilians, death like serious consequences, not this you know kind of day to day managing of 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 life under occupation. The other thing I'll say is that you know there's a lot of confusion. Um, for people who are in occupied territories um about what to do you know how do they how are they supposed to behave so that they do not violate this law while also you know survive like a in you know, a hostile a hostile occupation authority and and I'll give you an example you know Russia started um handing out russian passports to ukrainian citizens in occupied territory as kind of like a you know political show and so there are some ukrainian officials who said you know to people in occupied territory just do what you need to do to survive you know if that means getting a passport get a passport just like you know hold you know hanging there until ukrainian forces can come and liberate you and then there are those ukrainian officials who have said this is treason if you take a passport you are betraying your country resist at all costs and you know someone someone put it to me really interestingly i i don't think that made it into the the final story but he basically said you know we're set we're, we're basically taking the bravest members of society as the gold standard, and anything short of that is treason. So if you are not willing to kind of resist at all costs, if you're just, you know, by whether by fear or duress or opportunism, if you're kind of going along with the occupation, then you're a traitor no matter what. A- and I think, you know, that's, that's, um, that's something that just like does not account for the reality of, of war and, you know, people's need to survive war.
0: We are speaking with Intercept reporter Alice Spere, who is on to discuss her article on Russian troops' sexual violence against Ukrainians and those same Ukrainians being seen as collaborators by their government and their neighbors. You can follow Alice on Twitter or whatever it's called now at Alice Spere. That's A L I C E S P E R I. So you write about uh, Anna and her teenage daughter, Maria, as well as Anna's mother, uh, Maria's grandmother. You write, the well, of Anna and Maria, you write, the two lived with Anna's 74-year-old mother in a disheveled house surrounded by a large overgrown yard on the margins of both the city and society, not caring much about what people said about them. They were not liked by the community. Anna, with her blue hair and extravagant jewelry, looks at once much older than her 41 years and like a sister to Maria, who dyes her hair bright red and wears cheap knickknacks and artsy makeup. Were they already outsiders within their community? Is the cautionary tale that nonconformists will be victimized during times of crisis? And were they part of any social group or identity that was already marginalized within their community. My grandmother was Roma, so that's what I started thinking about. Were they part of a marginalized uh, social identity?
2: I think you know the the first thing to note about them is that they were three women alone, as you said, and that they're quite poor. Uh, and so that you know they, they kind of already lived on the margins of of Buchan society in a way. They you know Anna had like a bit of a reputation because as a as a single woman, you know, neighbors have been talking about her drinking and her supposed relationships with different men and, and i think this is actually something that we see over and over again in conflict related sexual violence where you know the, the the most marginalized are those who are targeted widows are very often targeted women alone it, it's just something that we see over and over again it's just um you know those that kind of spend time working with these victims know that whereas society is not really really understanding that and they kind of see you know the in, in this case, like Anna's neighbors were saying she was having a good time with the soldiers and she enjoyed soldiers. The other the other thing to say about Anna is that, you know, she is her father was Russian. And so it, to some of her neighbors that was already, you know, um, cause of suspicion, although that's a, a pretty common occurrence in Ukraine, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, there are there are many Ukrainians who have family in Russia. And uh, so it's not it's hardly unique, but they did they did see that as um you know, kind of cause of suspicion. And a lot of, you know, in a lot of liberated territories, you saw those who had connections to Russia in the past being the ones that were accused of being collaborators first. Um, the other thing that I'll say, and, you know, the, the mayor of Bucha and a local prosecutor I talked to and others, I mean, they really pointed to the fact that collaboration as, and there's the question of collaboration, the law, which we discussed, but then there's also this, this kind of like societal notion of collaboration. And that's something that sometimes is based in, you know, in you know real political beliefs. Like, you know, some people, as I said, might be more supportive of of uh Russia or or not. And in this case, Anna is really kind of indifferent to politics up to the invasion. She had just kind of been minding her own business. She is not a political person in in, in any way. Um, but um but also, you know, that the conflict kind of like allowed uh, an opportunity to sort of recast neighbor fights. And you know she she did have some tensions with some of her neighbors. Predating the conflict. And I think those were kind of exacerbated by this. And, and so it was easy to kind of slap on the, the traitor label on her and uh and, and not really um, you know, n- n- just kind of use that as an opportunity to sort of uh dismiss her as, as a traitor. Uh the other thing I'll say is that you know, the question of sexual violence. I think there is, it was very interesting talking to some of the neighbors who, you know, said things to me like, you know, we we know that the Russians like raped women and then they killed them, which absolutely happened in Bucha uh, with her. You know, she's still alive and she's here talking about it. So she cannot possibly be a victim. And Anna herself. I mean, it's interesting. She, you know, under the law, she is a victim of sexual violence. She was raped. But she, the way she talks about it herself, she's like, you know, she will tell you, I agreed to sleep with the soldiers dozens of them uh, which is just horrifying like but but she will say like i agreed to do it as a way like i negotiated with them i made a deal with the soldiers so they would not touch my daughter i agreed to do this and so even in the way she describes her own ordeal which you know is like absolutely sexual violence like there is like no question you know under under the law that that's what it is but like even she didn't quite have the terms to to kind of describe what happened to her and and the neighbors absolutely you know see this kind of a like the fact that she agreed to it in some way as a sign that she is no victim. She is, you know, kind of like a happy participant in this, which of course is far from the truth. And I think this kind of like highlights something that, you know, practitioners of, you know, human rights practitioners, people who deal with war crimes have kind of like a framework to understand and talk about these things that sometimes is not there in society. And and to their credit, Ukrainian, you know, Ukrainian authorities are really trying very hard to kind of, um, incorporate some some the international standards in, you know, for instance, the the um the dealing in for instance in, in dealing with victims of sexual violence. You know, they the prosecutor's office opened a special sexual violence crimes unit under its war crimes unit. And you know they're now being retrained. They have international experts coming in. There there's definitely been a reform in place, but but that hasn't quite trickled down to the rest of you know the justice system. So Early on, after Bucha was liberated, the first police officers that came by really did not have the tools to deal with, uh, with someone like Anna. They, you know, immediately saw her with suspicion. They they, they saw her much like the, the neighbors had, as like, you know, um, someone who went along with what happened to her and, and therefore not really a victim. And, you know, and, and when you talk to kind of higher level prosecutors, you know, I, I spoke with a woman who's in charge of the sexual violence division at the prosecutor general's office. And she like absolutely understands this as the sexual violence that it is. And in fact, you know, eventually Anna was included in, in like a, a list of um, survivors of sexual violence. And, you know, she's now a witness to war crimes. But it took many, many months of her telling her story over and over and over again, not just to her neighbor, but also to like dozens of police officers that came to her house over the months and and who just did not believe her.
0: And unbeknownst to her, she was not only protecting her teenage daughter Maria from sexual violence, She was also protecting her mother from sexual violence. She didn't realize that it didn't matter the age of the women involved. They would all be victims of sexual violence. You write that not far from Anna's home, on the leafy outskirts of the city, three brothers were found slain, including some who had worked as policemen. There was also a woman who taught the Ukrainian language, whom neighbors believe was targeted along with her husband and son for refusing to speak Russian to the occupiers. Some people who had fled found their homes looted. And burned. Other homes were untouched. Did looting and burning some homes and leaving others intact, that fueled suspicion as to who was a collaborator? Do you think that that was intentional by the Russian troops? That this was a strategy by the uh, by the Russian military to sow divides within the communities?
2: I'm not sure how intentional it was, but that's certainly the result. Uh, there, that's you know, as you said, it's absolutely true that the fact that somebody's home was burnt down and somebody's was completely untouched, like certainly created suspicions. I think um, you know, Russian soldiers certainly target we know they targeted certain categories of individuals. They targeted anyone who was affiliated to law enforcement or had been affiliated to law enforcement, any former military members, anyone who had, you know, basically they saw as a security threat. Uh, and then they they targeted those they per- you know they saw as nationalists, which really it, it could be anyone, could but mostly it was people that that spoke Ukrainian language and refuse to speak Russian to them. Many Ukrainians speak both easily. And, um, you know, those that kind of spoke Ukrainian are the ones that kind of were singled out. Uh, But, um, you know, I'm glad you kind of described it, the scene of what was found in Bucha, because I think that's that's something that, you know, it, it was really important to me to kind of get into that. Like one of the women that I interview in the story is one of, you know, one of Anna's neighbors, the one that you know kind of accused her of having a good time with the soldiers and of being a traitor and you know like all all these neighbors that kind of turned on Anna you know you you want to understand their perspective also this woman came home um and literally she came home the day that the city was liberated and walked into her backyard and found her husband her brother and another relative executed on the ground in her yard and so like the, the people that came back to Bucha you know are coming back to to a horror that's just like so unspeakable and, and then they start hearing rumors and start seeing pictures of the residents who had stayed some of them participating in looting which you know is something that did happen uh, mostly after the russian troops left or as they were leaving um a lot of people kind of went out into the street and and took things because they you know some of them out of opportunism we see that in every conflict Some of them because they thought maybe the neighbors weren't coming back or everybody was dead, Uh, and it's like you know that that they did see that and uh, and and I think that contributed to some of the, you know, some of the the kind of animosity towards towards the people that stayed. Basically, anyone who survived the occupation, you know, if they were not killed or they were not so badly tortured or traumatized that like you know like basically anyone that seemed to be seemed to have survived the occupation. Okay, at least on the surface, then was seen with some some suspicion, uh, and that's certainly what happened to Anna. And you know she'll be she's very upfront about the way she she used, you know she she and her daughter actually she's quite upfront about that too, like the way they the way they talk to the soldiers, the way that you know they went along with it because they saw that as their best chance of survival. So something that struck me is you know Maria the daughter said that you know, we told them. We told them what they wanted to hear. We told them Zelensky is a jerk and Putin is great, and you guys are all liberators, because under the circumstances we felt that that's what was going to get us out of this ordeal alive, and, and it did. And so, you know, they're they're very honest about that, and to neighbors that's just completely unacceptable.
0: You write later last summer to SBU officers. These are intelligence officers of the Ukrainian government. Uh, came to Anna's house and handed her a document recognizing her status as a victim of sexual crimes. In the months that followed, they asked more questions about her contacts with soldiers, and last November, they finally gave her the polygraph test she had been demanding for months. Did Anna ever express to you her opinion on why they would not give her a polygraph test when she was demanding one to prove her innocence? And can this all be? You know, and, and and a lot of the issues that we're talking today about today be just chalked off to chalked up to the logistical problems created in the fog of war.
2: I mean, there certainly was an element of that. I've written in other stories about how you know completely overwhelmed uh, Ukraine's judicial and law enforcement apparatus was. Uh, in you know, as territories were liberated, I, I wrote about how they you know they had municipal cops responding to like mass graves and dealing with mass graves who had like. No expertise, no experience, you know, like they don't have the numbers of people to do it. Like early on in the conflict, there's a huge capacity issue, which, you know, is in part why so many international organizations and groups send people to Ukraine to help in the effort that's created other problems. You know, we now have kind of like too many people all trying to investigate crimes at the same time, which creates a whole other set of issues. But, you know, that's for a different time. But but yes, there was definitely a sense of that. Uh, and, and then I think generally, I mean, Anna was was dismissed i mean people didn't really take her seriously uh they just you know local police and then later national police that came to her house they seem mostly to focus on you know the allegations of looting and the allegations of collaboration and uh, she kept telling them this you know that she did sleep with the soldiers but you know kind of telling the story as i tell it and they just did not see that as um as the sexual violence it is. And and it's interesting because even when eventually the SBU took up her case, it's really not clear if they're treating her, even though officially she's a victim, it's not clear if they're treating her as a victim or as a collaborator. I mean, she goes to this SBU interview, this polygraph test, which, you know, I, I think is, it's actually quite interesting that so many people in Ukraine spoke to me about this polygraph tests as, you know, this kind of gold standard, when we know they're very problematic tests in general. But like, this is something that kind of is, Talked up all the time there, but uh, but when she finally got this test, many many months after the liberation of Bucha, the officers asked her to describe the rape. She asked, you know, they asked her to describe how many people she'd been raped by. But then they also asked her, you know, did you work with Russian intelligence? Did you kill anybody? Uh, and so that really kind of shows, you know, this um, this uh, this tension between you know the fact that she is undoubtedly a victim of sexual violence, but also still a source of suspicion uh, and um yeah I mean I think that, that that polygraph test is a really kind of telling um episode about how you know Ukrainian authorities ultimately saw her and how many of them continue to see her you know we we know from neighbors and we know from her attorney that like a lot of officers still don't really believe her or you know they believe sure she may be a victim but she's playing that up and you know she's somehow played a role in this.
0: So do you think that the nation of Ukraine can survive the social divisions provoked by the war? Because, you know, you point out how even making a, you know, liking a Facebook post about people who want to have peace or people who just oppose the war, how that can be a criminal offense. So can the nation of Ukraine as if it ever existed in a way, I mean, it it has existed, but in being one group and one identity, can that survive the social divisions provoked by the war?
2: I mean, I I think it certainly can. And there's, you know, a very robust, strong civil society in Ukraine and, you know, human rights organizations in Ukraine that are aware of kind of these issues and are talking about them if quietly, but, you know, they are talking about them. I think a lot of people will tell you that, you know, we can't really deal with this until the war is won. Like there's this idea that until all of Ukraine is liberated that we can't quite deal with the social fissures. And and I think that's a problem. And, you know, we've seen this massive investment in prosecutions in addition to all the local cases. We have, of course, the International Criminal Court and a number of other processes underway. And that's hugely important. Like I said before, you know, impunity in in other contexts, like in Syria, has directly contributed to these crimes in Ukraine. At the same time, not everything can be dealt with at the prosecutorial level. Not everything can be like legislated. And I think what Ukraine is lacking right now, and I think there's an urgent need for internal conversations about transitional justice, internal conversations about how do we reconcile this society that has, you know, gone through this horrifying war, um, which was without a question an invasion. And like, you know, like there's like, you know, I think that there's a risk, like sometimes people are kind of, you know, saying, "Well, you know, this is very much the Russian narrative. Is like this is not an invasion; we're liberating our people." That that's not the case. This was a sovereign country that was invaded by a foreign power. At the same time, there are internal divisions. There are different opinions within Ukraine. There are tensions that need to be addressed in in you know from a transitional justice lens. I think rather than uh, a criminal a criminal one like the collaboration law is doing. Um, and I think. Right now, that's not seen as a priority by certainly the Ukrainian government who's, you know, got its hands full with the conflict, for sure. But uh, but I think also by society, I mean, there just hasn't been a lot of, of space to process what is this doing to us as a, as a nation. And I think we're going to see some of those conversations going, going forward. And, you know, as more territories are liberated, there, there is talk about how do we reintegrate, particularly those people who have lived under Russian occupation for years now.
0: So... You write that Anna's story is a cautionary tale. What is the warning given in Anna's story of first appeasing Russian troops as a way to protect her daughter from sexual violence and then being a victim of sexual violence by other Russian troops to protect her teenage daughter? Finally, uh, being seen by law enforcement and by neighbors as a collaborator for being the victim of sexual violence at the hands of Russian soldiers. So what is the warning that story gives us?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the warning is really to the authorities that are tasked with investigating cases like this, uh, that, you know, we know there was widespread systemic sexual violence by Russian forces in occupied territories. As we liberate more territories, or as Ukrainian forces liberate more territories, they need to have a system in place to address those victims, to work with those victims, so that many can come forward, you know, because if if our priority is accountability for Russian crimes, then, then victims cannot fear having to come forward and, you know, maybe being suspected or investigated as as collaborators. So, I mean, it's not so much a warning on, you know, to victims themselves that this, you know, horrendous ordeal that Anna was put through will repeat itself, hopefully not, and hopefully some lessons have been learned. Uh, but but it's certainly a warning to to those, you know, who are, who are, who are seeking to bring accountability for these Russian crimes to understand the nuances of this. Uh, and then also I think it's, you know, my, my hope is that this will contribute to some of the conversations, which are very, you know, very quiet and rare at the moment, but some of the conversations are nonetheless are happening in Ukrainian society and also among the human rights community about collaboration. Like, what do we do with this issue of collaboration? What is the best way forward that, you know, serves society and serves individual victims and, you and, uh, and doesn't create more conflict going forward.
0: So what does it say to you about Anna's situation when no evidence of collaboration is brought to the courts and intelligence does not find her at, to be a collaborator, but that means little to many of her neighbors? In wartime, is the court of public opinion the main arbiter of justice?
2: Yeah, unfortunately that's that's really what seems to be happening in her case. We, we don't know for a fact because uh, a lot of collaboration investigations are, um, you know, secret. They're national security investigations. But my understanding is, and Ana's attorney's understanding, is that no evidence was ever found against her, and therefore the collaboration case against her most likely never proceeded, whereas the, the you know, sexual violence case is very much underway. Um, but that doesn't matter to her neighbors. You know, she has, she was certainly an outcast before, and now she's just been completely shunned. And she is, you know, one thing that really struck me when I when I spoke to her is like, she described this horrendous violence she she survived during the Russian occupation she described you know everything that happened with the soldiers and then she's like you know but what came after was even worse um and, and to me that kind of goes back to this idea of like you know we often are so focused on the moment of conflict and we don't really look at its you know its aftermath and and so often the aftermath is just so painful for for survivors because you know, because they're they're kind of abandoned to to deal with the consequences of this. You know, she made choices in wartime uh, under extremely uh, difficult circumstances, and now she is just uh, seen as a traitor by all her neighbors.
0: Do you think the world is more susceptible today to the rumors that are making life very difficult for people like Anna because of the pervasiveness of the Internet in the form of conspiracy theories. Are we any less equipped to fend off rumors than previous generations may have been? Because establishment media outlets insisted that the Arab Spring would have never happened without Google and social media. How much blame does social media deserve for this kind of hate-mongering?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question because, you know, we definitely saw that in Anna's case, you know, people started circulating rumors around about her and others while Bucha was still under occupation. I saw Facebook posts and Telegram posts of, you know. People calling her a whore because she was sleeping with soldiers, and people, you know, calling for her death, and and you know, while like literally while the city is still under occupation, and certainly in in the months that, that followed. At the same time, you know, Bucha is a very small place where you have this kind of neighbors conflicts that have, have come back generations that you know existed in some form long before the internet, and, and so you see how ultimately war is. You know, th- th- there are no winners in war. And, and one of the most tragic consequences of war is really kind of how it turns sometimes victims on victims. And, um, you know, some of the neighbors who are really causing all this harm to, to Anna are themselves victims of horrific crimes, like the ones I, you know, described earlier, what the neighbor that came home to like all these bodies in her yard. And so everyone is left so broken by war in in and, you know, and, and victims don't necessarily support victims, um, and I think that's really where governments and authorities and, and institutions need to kind of set the standard and find models for reconciliation.
0: We have been speaking with Intercept reporter Aliche Sperry, who has been on to discuss her article on Russian troops' sexual violence against Ukrainians and those same Ukrainians being seen as collaborators by their neighbors. You can follow Aliche on Twitter at a-L-I-C-E-S-P-E-R-I, Alice Sperry. Alice, one last question for you, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is always what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I don't, I mean, the question is hellish, but I don't know how much your response will be. I think it's going to be more enlightening. War is violent. It's brutish, it's brutal, it's cruel, it's ferocious, it's inhumane, deadly. War is where atrocities like physical, mental torture and even sexual torture are normalized. Do you think those who call for war, who provoke war, who initiate war, who begin wars through invasion, states that even agree they are going to go to war together collaboratively, collaboratively do they ever consider That war means there will definitely be atrocities and inhumane war crimes will be committed, including women of all ages being raped. Why do states seemingly never consider what will happen to the most vulnerable noncombatants who are always the largest number of people killed in war? Do you think this inhumanity of war is ever contemplated before wars are launched? Because all state leaders must know this is inevitable Once war is declared, why do states never seemingly consider what will happen to the most vulnerable during wartime?
2: Well, that's that's a million dollar question. I mean, I I think they, they do consider it. They know they have even terms to talk about it. Right. Like, you know, in the US, we call it collateral damage. Right. That's ultimately like it's not something we don't you know, that you know, in the moment when, when you know, leadership makes a decision about going to war, it's not like they are not aware that this is going to happen. It is a trade-off that to them is worth making. That's why we have completely mm-hmm. dehumanizing phrases like, you know, like collateral damage, which I think is one of the most horrifying ways, one of the most horrifying phrases we use in the context of war, but, you know, one of many. And I think what's, you know, what's <laughs> what's been striking to me with, with Ukraine, certainly, but but not only. I mean, you mentioned Iraq before and, you know, many other conferences, like, kind of the public's willingness to go along with it. It's, you know, we have, like, it, it, the, the invasion of Ukraine was horrifying, the crimes committed by Russian forces are horrifying, um, and yet there has been very little debate about, you know, what does it mean to, 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 to like, how do we respond to this war in a way that is, um, that is putting an end to it, as opposed to prolonging it, you know indefinitely. Uh, we we now don't really see an end to this conflict. It's not, you know, it's the second year. We are supporting Ukraine, but we're also not really supporting ways to end the war. And so I think, um, yeah, I mean, perhaps we've all become so kind of desensitized to to, to like the real cost of this. And, and, and the cost in Ukraine has been Enormous, and that's actually something else I'll say about Ukraine is like we don't, you know, we know the cost has been enormous, but we actually don't know very much about that cost. I mean, it's been extremely difficult to get information, even just about casualties in Ukraine. We have some rough estimates, and they're absolutely um, mind blowing, but they there, there's a lot that we don't know. I actually wrote a separate article earlier this year about the challenges of covering this conflict. It's one of the most covered wars. You know, certainly in recent memory, I can't think of a conflict that's been covered wall to wall. You know, as much as the Ukraine war has, and yet we know so little about what's happening there. And part of it is a question of access. I mean, there is virtually no access uh, on the Russian side. I mean, we, you know, we have reporters in prison in Russia right now as we speak. So, like. That's been completely inaccessible. But even in Ukraine, it's extremely difficult to access the front lines. The Ukrainian government is very controlling of access, very controlling of the narrative that comes out of Ukraine. And so, you know, paradoxically, we have all this coverage, but we understand so little about what's happening in this war. And it is even worse than what we we have seen come out Um
0: liche this has been really an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being on. Look for a message from me uh, in Twitter later on today, uh, direct message via Twitter uh, later today, because I've been getting some reports from past guests on the show that i would like to have your opinion about because i you know people want to come on the show and talk about what's happening with ukraine and some of this is not being reported and i just want to get your opinion on it so look for a message for me thank you so much for I will. Being on will show and we would be we would love to have you back on again
2: thank you so much for having me
0: all right take care alice Bye. You, you can find alice again on twitter At Alice Sperry, if you're somebody who speaks American like me. A-L-I-C-E-S-P-E-R-I. So, here's the deal. We were supposed to be streaming today's interview live. Uh, We were under the impression that the article would be posted today, Thursday, September 21st, or Friday, September 22nd. Just before Alice went on air, we were told that they needed us to not only embargo the story that they had shared with us, but they wanted us to also embargo the interview. Now, I understand the journalistic ethics when it comes to embargoing a story that has not yet been published, but I did have difficulty making a decision on this because this this is our interview. This is our creation based on her work. So this is our content, and I believe that we should have been streaming it live, and we should po- uh, post it immediately. However, I understand the situation that The Intercept is in right now, and that Aliche is in right now, and they don't want us to scoop a story that is yet to be posted. And We appreciate all of the work that The Intercept has done with us. So we will be playing this as soon the moment that this article by Alice goes live at The Intercept, our interview, this show, will go live. So our apologies to anybody who is listening right now uh, and the story's been delayed. Our apologies. Staring into the journalistic abyss so you don't have to. This is Hell Well, that was horrible and enlightening If you believe the conversation we just had with Alice Sperry Is the kind you think deserves to be aired So all know the brutal, hellish cruelty of war Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber To our weekly bonus Patreon podcast Which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com Slash hell Every Thursday morning At 10 a.m. Chicago time Generally, uh, Thursday mornings Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, aside from will you embargo this interview for a few more days? (laughs) And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Uh, This week's
1: question from hell is, what can climate change do for you? I mean, that's a tough decision, right? What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you people, make it work to your advantage? It took, it,
0: so both people are happy. I mean, yeah. I'm kind of a little bit unhappy about the fact that we had to embargo the interview.
1: Yeah. It's,
0: uh... <laughs> what yeah.
1: are you going to do? I don't know. Go smoke the some things weed. Things we do for <laughs> our, uh... Our publications who support our show so much. Yeah. All right. So what was the All question right. from hell again? So yeah, question from hell is what can climate change do for you? A question written by me. <laughs> <laughs> um, my personal plan is to grow oranges in Alaska, but oh really? Yeah,
0: oranges in Alaska. Yeah. All right.
1: The fjords are beautiful. Why not sure. grow some citrus? Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Over on the Welcome to the Head Hellhole <laughs> Facebook group. Yes, sir. Uh, we have Lee H. who responds, Climate change can give me warm, sunny summer days instead of our usual June gloom and chilly Augusts. Then winter, without the cold rain, the San Francisco Bay Area is being transformed. The place does have strange weather. San
0: Francisco weather sucks. Yeah. So when I lived there for four months, I worked on a loading dock because I had a lot of work experience. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... I'd get to work at eight in the. M- I would be going on my way to work, and it would be raining. I would mm-hmm. get off Muni and walk to work, and it's raining. Five minutes into work, I'm out on the loading dock. The sun has come out. The sun is then out during my entire work day. Yeah. And as soon as it gets about 4:55, starts raining again. Of <laughs> it course the- it does. It was in the winter though. I mean, that's what uh-huh. their winters are like. It's yeah. sunny in the morning. Uh, or sunny in the afternoon and it's the rest of the day it's just awful
1: some of their best weather is in november which is (laughs) (laughs) not many places can say that in the northern hemisphere anyway (laughs) yeah um let's see thomas k responds to the question what can climate change do for you i'm hoping my house becomes a lakefront home (laughs) (laughs) uh brianna k responds fulfill my deepest childhood desire live in a two-story house and fill the first floor with water so i can swim around in it
0: <laughs> that is great right <laughs> yeah.
1: you guys are really making some lemonade here <laughs> see over on twitter the lone response from edison k is I simply cannot drink water without that Pfas flavoring.
0: <laughs> I don't know if that answers it's, the question from uh, I don't know. Well, <laughs> no, but it, it's a great answer. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Yeah. What?
1: Is it Pfas or Pfas? Or, I, don't I don't know. Around I Chicago know. I yeah, defer to Pfas. But, <laughs> I see. Yeah. Uh, us see, we have a straggler post on Patreon from Mark C. Uh who replies? I've always, I mean, I've always thought it would be cool to drive one of those fan boats, right?
0: <laughs> I've always thought it would be too. Yeah,
1: those look really
0: fun, but loud as hell. Oh, I bet. You yeah. know, like you don't want to be the person driving; you want to be the person in the front.
1: You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, totally. Any more? A uh, couple on Discord. We have Crime Doctor Twenty Nineteen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good name. <laughs> who uh, replies? It will take care of my endless hoarding of Bibles, manger scene (laughs) decorations, and church bulletins. Unless God selects me as Noah, then I'm screwed. (laughs) That's really (laughs) really good. good That is really good. And then Kim G. Pelting acidic rain will provide microdermabrasion to de-age my (laughs) sun-scorched, highly-heated skin for free. (laughs) Always a strong response, Kim. Uh, any That'll do us.
0: Uh, so uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we do have some new merchandise there, so make sure you check that out. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. So if you are, I hope we're going to do this. When we're going to be playing this next week at some weird time.
1: Hopefully Tuesday.
0: Yeah. Uh, Who knows? All right. So, what's Jeff up to this week on The Moment of Truth? This is also confusing. <laughs> the time space spectrum yeah. is becoming confusing on the show.
1: And we're melting Chuck's brain. Yes. And I get to watch it right through the glass. <laughs> so
0: what's Jeff doing during The Moment of
1: Truth? Let's you know what you can expect from your dem friends throughout the coming
0: year. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since nineteen ninety six, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon at Patreon.com slash this is hell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash this is hell. This week on Patreon. If you thought last week's monologue on a show called "This Is Hell" being inspiring was a surprise, wait until you get a load of this week's Patreon monologue. Following conversations with Sharice Morris on historic evidence that humanity does not exist, and uh, that that sorry, following uh, conversations with Sharice Morris on historic evidence that humanity can exist, and. Drive without police and prisons And then our talk with Kelly Hayes on how we don't All have to get along to be part Of the same movement against the cruelty and Violence of the state and then this week Speaking with Liza Featherstone on how Socialists, yeah freaking socialists Can help pass laws that decarbonize the Economy and Kimberly Crenshaw on the Power of awareness in the Hashtag say her Name movement and going beyond Awareness to organizing Despite Knowing that Yes, this is hell. Believe it or not, guests have actually been giving me hope. It's not like they were the first guests to ever mention hope on the show. In fact, most guests over the 27 years we have been on air somehow in our conversations, our hellish conversations on a note of hope, which I've always found surprising and never really understood. And some of that hope... It appears, despite this being hell, is starting to make me, at least to a small degree, hopeful, especially in light of doomers and doomerism whose goals seem to be nothing more than giving up and not doing anything about the mess we're in today. Speaking of hope, on Patreon we will be playing our July uh, July 17, 2004 interview with award-winning author Rebecca Solnit, who was on at the time to discuss her then-just-published book, Hope in the dark, untold histories, wild possibilities. But the only way you can hear all that disgusting hope, despite this being hell, is by becoming a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash this is hell. If you do become a Patreon patron. You get a special code word. You get $5 off each and every piece of our merchandise. You get the weekly podcast. You get first crack at that every week's question from hell. And you get to pose a question from hell to me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, that we post only on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff, with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell you are listening to God's favorite radio show. Rumor is, it's Allah's and Buddha's as well. Prove me wrong. This is hell. I know you have hefe on the line. What?
3: What can you expect from the blue-pilled? I was fascinated to read in a social media post that Biden had shown no evidence of mental decline throughout his term in office. Had my eyes and ears deceived me? Was he not having more trouble than in the past, following complex sentences and ideas to a comprehensible end? Had he not, during the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health, tried to encourage a recently deceased colleague to rise from the audience and be recognized? Was he not slower and less confident than even at the beginning of his term? had he not been falling down more than a person with full cognition coordination would be expected to. A fake showed him bumping his way face down the full length of the Air Force One debarkation stairway, leaping to his feet at the bottom, none the worse for wear. The right wing has collected all his real stumbles and tumbles, with Shapiro and Carlson voiceovers mocking him, whereas I'm sure Trump would have burst like the sewage-filled balloon that he is on contact with the ground. But Are falls themselves something we should complacently accept? The public's perception is important as the public has been vouchsafed the key task of voting. If they worry, I worry about them worrying. The last president who fell a lot, Gerald Ford, ended up pardoning Richard Nixon, an act of abject mendacity that has redounded to crisis proportions in the present day. I'm not saying there was a direct relation between Ford's falling and his utter paucity of moral, ethical, and civic judgment, but even not having sustained a brain concussion, an elder person's tendency to fall can both indicate and exacerbate cognitive debility. Should one dare ask these questions, one is not only barraged with rationalizations, but accusations of ageism and ableism on top of it all. So be prepared for that. I wasn't. For some reason, the lessons of 2016 and its aftermath had faded into the vanishing point of my rear view. I forgot how practiced doctrinaire Democrats are at denying reality. They're almost as good at it as GOP supporters and fossil fuel cheerleaders i had forgotten how Hillary had infused them with self-delusion, leading by example, having sabotaged her own chance to win in three key swing states with her refusal to heed her campaign staff on the ground in those locations. She had limped off into the woods to contemplate her humiliation by a cheaply spray-tanned demagogue and emerged blaming Bernie Sanders and his followers, failing the tough test, of self-awareness she tended to elide the internalized misogyny of white women who voted for trump in numbers far greater than reason would allow unless one's reason included the ability to think critically about oneself and she had plenty of enablers among her hill-pilled pundits assuredly both racism and misogyny contributed to trump's win but those two diseases were always going to play a large role it didn't take a tahanasi Coates or a rachel maddow to figure that out Only Hillary could have brought her supporters the introspective self-criticism they would listen to. And she demurred. She didn't feel like it. She opted instead for explanations that cost her nothing but historical accuracy. Identity politics allowed her to strike her own deficits out of the historical record. The spray-tanned stupor villain bets on the other side of the identity politics coin nationalist white anti-left respectably racist and proudly deplorable are all identities too we now have the great luxury of naming them more succinctly MAGA. it's possible as the 2020 win of joe biden might indicate to sway and peel off the less left phobic members of that group at least the ones in michigan ohio georgia arizona wisconsin and pennsylvania to name some of the obvious so-called purple states regarding that manifestation expect to hear how great biden is for the working class now if i couldn't admit that his regime is substantially more union friendly than trump's i'd be writing off the advantages to labor not insignificant of living under a far more union friendly national labor relations board But be on your guard, for should you appear vulnerable enough to acknowledge that fact, you'll also be flogged with pro-Biden propaganda that beatifies him with far more credit than is due. To the majority of the labor-conscious public, Biden's most memorable action in relation to unions was subverting the strike power of the railroad workers last December. He quite patronizingly helped them get the deal. That was mostly the one management had favored and the unions had rejected. Then in May, he took credit for getting them the sick days they'd been unable to bargain for, sick days the union nevertheless had had to continually beat the drum for in the interim, thanks to Biden's own interference in the first place. Further, not enough, if any, credit is given for helping win the sick days to the across the aisle efforts of two senators, one a Republican, the other an independent who caucuses with the Dems, Mike Brown of Indiana, and Hillary's scapegoat, Bernie Sanders, respectively. But it's natural for the Biden White House to spin it as a Biden victory, if only as bleach to remove the stain of forcing the railway unions to capitulate to management last December. Also swept away like worthless crumbs off the bargaining table amid all the Dems rhetoric of helping the workers was a repeal of Trump's actions. On behalf of the railroad owners that allowed them to fire a full one quarter of their workforce in 2016 such a repeal would have brought back regulations to make hours and workload. hours and workloads more humanly manageable and by most understandings could have prevented the toxic freight disaster in East Palestine Ohio. But the Dems give with one hand, take with the other approach, doesn't negate the reality that Biden's NLRB makes better soil for the seeds of a labor, resurgent, for a labor resurgence to germinate in then Trump and his overt fascists did, or would do again if we're terribly unlucky. Biden's mealy mouth is a far cry from the iron fist with which Reagan clobbered the air traffic controllers in a key moment in the rights project of turning working class proto-maga sentiment against unions. Another Trump tatership would only set the stage for labor to be bludgeoned backwards even further. So when responding to blue pill Dems, if for some reason you want to remain on good terms, that's one point on which you can justify cautiously with reservations giving ground. Biden would be tangibly better for labor than Trump. I admit I plan on voting for Biden in order to prevent a return of Trump or anyone like him to office, because we may be seeing the beginnings of a labor movement rebirth. And I believe Biden and the Dems present weaker barriers to overcome. Yes, that's voting for the lesser of two evils. Well, I prefer lesser evil to greater evil. Go figure. I also think handing maggots Any form of victory is to be avoided for myriad reasons. I don't want them to feel bold. I don't want them to feel good about themselves. It makes them think they can subvert elections with intimidation and violence. I do worry about Biden running again, if only because the public seem worried about him running again, and I fear a self-fulfilling prophecy situation, and anyone who isn't worried about Biden being too old or possibly in mental decline is in the fog of the blue-pilled. Anyone not worried that the public worries he's too old or possibly in mental decline is blue-pilled. Anyone who tells you that what you see is something other than what it looks like, is relying on gaslighting the public rather than convincing them with actual evidence. They want us all to view Biden through their blue-wave-shaped cataracts. And that worries me, too. For the next year, I'm going to feel every day, at least for a moment, like Trumpism has no chance. I'm just looking for that single-issue dopamine bump. But, If I were in the habit of giving advice to the DNC, I'd advise replacing Biden with a younger and less worrisome entity, maybe someone comfortable being more vehemently pro-labor indeed and not just word. And were I to be advising the DNC, a habit I don't have, I might also suggest, if I thought for a moment they might listen, that they consider replacing themselves. This has been the moment of truth. A good day.
0: Oh, Jeffy, right before the show starts, we hear from the intercept and they say they want us to embargo the interview we did. Am I breaking any kind of journalistic ethics by not saying no? We're just going to stream it live.
3: No, 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 no. They're not at all. Not at all. They they help you, you help them.
0: Exactly. A little back scratch. They scratching. help us.
3: Oh, I wanted to tell you one of the my favorite uh, uh you laughed at some uh of uh, the uh I guess uh social media handles. Yeah. One of my favorites, I don't know if they're a a follower of This Is Hell or Not, they might be Magyar McCheese. (laughs) Whoa. I just really love that.
0: I remember, uh, unbelievably, uh, tripping my brains out and being in Canada, and we went into a McDonald's because we were tripping our brains out in Canada, and uh, they gave me, uh, they were giving out plastic, like, bags that were hand puppets of Mayor McCheese. But on the (laughs) other side of it, because (laughs) Canada is bilingual, it said Mayor au Fromage. And so, because we were tripping, we had to get out of line and go sit down at a table and laugh for (laughs) what may have been a minute, what may have been seven seconds, what may have been 13 years, I'm really not too sure, and then we got back up in the line, and I ordered the meal through using my... Mirror au fromage hand puppet. And I was talking to the person
3: in her face. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they weren't tripping, man. <laughs> uh,
0: exactly. Uh, they were because they work at McDonald's. Well, so, uh, Jeffy, always yeah. appreciate it.
3: Well, always appreciate uh, being uh, on this show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Stay beautiful. No other outlet. Stay you beautiful, can. sir. Bye.
0: Bye. Live. From land stolen from the Pottawatomie people, this is hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Al wins their choice of whatever this is hell swag they want. That is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Will, please remind us, what is this week's
1: question from Al, and do we have any new answers? This week's question from hell is, what can climate change do for you? And a few last minute responses on Facebook. So, uh, Sloan T., says, make my whites whiter and my brights brighter. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> uh, Adam A. Hey, if climate change can get This Is Hellpost to show up in my feed on time regularly, <laughs> we should talk. <laughs> Look, we're shadow banned. There's nothing yeah. we can do about it. Sorry, guys. Yep. Uh, Aaron D. Make the beach in San Francisco like the beach in San Diego. <laughs> Apparently, we're big in the Bay Area. I
0: guess. West Coast listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. Any more? That's it. So the answers I liked the most were, let's see, on Patreon, Jeffrey T. saying, finally melt your ex's ice-cold heart. <laughs> uh, Essential saying, create jobs. Palm Leaf Fanners can't be automated. I did like Dorchin's answer. Kill yeah. fascist creator of Dilbert Scott Adams. <laughs> uh, Andrew M. saying, finish the job already. Mark C. saying, I mean, I've always thought it would be cool to drive one of those fan boats, right? On Discord, I did like, uh, what's Dr. Crime? What's uh, Crime Doctor 2019. Crime Doctor 2019 saying it will take care of my endless hoarding yeah. of Bibles, manger scene decorations. By the way, I believe that's called a creche, am I correct? And uh, <laughs> church bulletins, unless God selects me as Noah, then I am screwed. Kim G saying pelting acidic rain will provide abrasion to de-age my sun-scorched, highly heated skin for free. On Facebook, Adam A saying, hey, if climate change can get this hellpost to show up in my feed on time regularly, we should talk. Welcome to the hellhole uh, Brianna Kay saying, fulfill my deepest uh, childhood desire, live in a two-story house, and fill the first floor with water so I can <laughs> swim around in it. And I really did like Edison Kay saying, I simply cannot drink water without that PFAS flavoring. I'm not too sure if that answers the question from hell, but i just like the answer. Any of those really stick out to you oh, there, man.
1: Will? Oh, man. was a strong feel. Yeah. I think I got a. I, my leanings towards Crime Doctor's response on uh, Discord this week.
0: I think so too. I like Crime a Doctor's hair. response. Yeah, yeah, very, very close. I would give it to Brianna Kay, but there's an issue there with a conflict of interest as I was the uh, ordained minister
1: at her wedding. Oh, can't, uh, <laughs> I can't, can't really. Can't be giving them swag then. I'm just going to give her swag anyway.
0: Yeah. That's how I get out of giving people gifts for their birthdays and yeah. holidays.
1: Got all this swag oh, laying yeah. around. <laughs> you <laughs> forgot a birthday? No problem.
0: So that makes this week's question from winner, Crime Doctor 2019. We'll be getting in contact with you, Crime Doctor. and But you should be emailing us at chuckatthisishell.com or posting on Facebook or Discord. and uh, no, Email me because we need your mailing address so we can mail whatever piece of merchandise you want. Just tell us what piece of merchandise you want and email uh, and we'll send it to you immediately. Congratulations. Just... Keep answering our question from hell. We always really appreciate it. My answer to this week's question from hell, what can climate change do for you? I don't know. Ratings? More Patreon patrons? Because listeners realize our guests were right all along about global warming. Maybe it can raise my Q rating. I don't even know what that is. Thanks to everyone. (laughs) What's a Q rating? (laughs) It means is it like, a
1: broadcast thing? Uh,
0: yeah, it's about the amount of media coverage that you get. Oh, okay. And so the amount of uh, media attention you get. And right. I think that's probably an inaccurate definition. So it's, uh, <laughs> quantity over quality, I yes. assume. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so thanks to everyone who sent in their answer to this week's question from Al. Uh, Will, who are our guests for
1: next week? Um, starting off next week is Samuel Moyne, author of Liberalism Against Itself cold war intellectuals and the making of our times sam is the chancellor kent professor of law and history at yale university and is the author of many books on the history of ideas and politics in the 20th century
0: and despite that he keeps coming on our show he does it's
1: weird i know he's like way out of our league but way out here he is Yep. um then we have Intercept writer Murtaza Hussein, who returned to the show to discuss his reporting, including Pakistan confirms secret diplomatic cable showing U.S. pressure to remove Imran Khan. After initially suggesting the cable published by The Intercept was inauthentic, Pakistani officials now claim it doesn't reveal a conspiracy. When Imran Khan was running for uh, president, prime minister, prime minister, prime minister. Uh,
0: there uh, was a two-story, 20 feet wide poster of him right here at the corner at Devon and Western. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, on the southeast corner. It was a bank at one time. Now it's a shoe store. Oh, yeah. On the bottom floor, uh, I'm betting knockoff shoes. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, because they're oddly cheap. Um, so, uh, yeah, two-story poster, and I was just like, man, I would love to have that poster. What the
1: hell am I going to do with it? I don't know. But Hang I... it from my back porch. That would be pretty hot. Yeah. So
0: everybody be... in the park <laughs> sees a two-story Imran Khan. <laughs>
1: yeah, it would be... I don't know. It's it's Rogers Park Westridge. Anything is... Yeah. I don't know. Not much surprises me these days here. <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> and who's our final guest next week? Um
1: wrapping up the week is journalist robert mccullum on his article at undark robot police dogs are on patrol but who's holding the leash numerous cities have acquired dog-like robots for policing researchers say the lack of transparency is worrying and how
0: so you found this story at undark and then i Uh, made it so it was part of our guest source list on uh, Twitter so we can follow them more. Is that a site that you go to normally?
1: Yeah, I started following it during quarantine, um, you know, because they they focus on, like, science and health and stuff like that and uh, actually have scholars weigh in on the stuff. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, like, partially supported by, like, Cambridge University and some other, you know, grant money. Oh, all right. Yeah.
0: Well, I, it looks like a fantastic site. I was reading that article the other day. It was really great. So, a huge thank you to this week's producers, Dan Kugler and Will Ibben, of course. Thanks to Sebastian Vooper for uh, Past Inside the Present, Ronaldo Magaldi, and This Week in Rotten History, Jeff Dorchin, and The Moment of Truth. Thanks to Richard Norwood, who is our standby producer, and we always pre- uh, appreciate when he steps in also thanks to Alexander Jerry Theron Humiston and Pete Valavanis just because talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when it's all about hope go figure including a 2004 interview with award winning author Rebecca Solnit on you guess it hope and my apologies I am your bitter blind broke gap radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz there's only way, one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position. Why am I forgetting this? There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you. Because it's a this Thursday. I know, exactly. Sitting down in the lotus position, uh, turning your palms towards the sky, uh, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words: Everybody's stupid.